This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. You know, I wasn't going to bring this up, but we were just talking offline, and I understand that you have recently had a Taylor Swift sighting. How was that? I mean, it was great to to be in and around, you know, what one might consider the most famous person, at least in the U.S., if not the world right now. As avid listeners will know, I am a tried and true Buffalo Bills fan and got to watch. I think you mean long suffering. Yeah, I got to watch 57 and a half minutes of a really interesting playoff game in person. We'll leave out the last 90 seconds because there's two words we'll probably never utter on this podcast. And it's not reg B.I., but it might talk about the way the direction of a certain field goal kick went. So it was great to, to see the energy in the stadium. I know a lot of uh, NFL fans out there are hopefully have enjoyed the playoffs. Uh, we seem to be ending at the Super Bowl road here with a with a pretty frequent attendee from the uh, the AFC, which hopefully the Bills will yeah. unseat at some point. But uh, I did make real life eye contact. Excuse me. My eyes viewed Taylor Swift from afar <laughs> in person, uh, which my wife was eternally jealous of knowing she missed, missed the game. But uh, we did not interact. I did not get tickets to her show. Jason Kelsey was not derobing in and around me. It was a few sections away, but a good evening. But for that long, long but walk for, to the car. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry you didn't get to hang out with Jason Kelsey. I think he was having a pretty good they, time. They enjoyed night. themselves. <laughs> and that's all right. Anyway. All right. Well, back to business. You know, we're here with another episode of the Insecurities Podcast. We have another great guest. This one is actually a little bit different for us, which I love. You know, we're always talking about legal developments. Today, we're going to lean, I think, a little bit more into sort of policy or politics and kind of how things get done in Washington. Uh, we've got Ann Kelly with us, who was at the SEC for a long time, working on the 10th floor with a bunch of the commissioners and a, and a couple of chairs uh, in what was really, I think, sort of a legislative affairs role She's going to talk to us a little bit about the budget, uh, the current spending bills that are floating around D.C., and how the SEC and other agencies actually get money to spend on many of the important programs and things that they're doing to fulfill their mission. All right, a little bit more about Anne before we jump in. Anne is a partner at Mercury Strategies, which is a legislative consulting firm that provides clients with policy counseling and advocacy before Congress, the executive branch and executive and independent agencies, including, of course, the SEC. Anne has over 20 years of experience in both the executive and legislative branches of the U.S. government. Before joining Mercury Strategies in 2021, she served as a political appointee at the SEC, where her work spanned five administrations and nine chairs and acting chairs. During her tenure at the SEC, Anne served in numerous positions, including Deputy Director of Legislative and Intergovernmental Affairs, and Senior Advisor to Chair Mary Jo White. And we are really excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining Insecurities. Great to be here. Looking forward to talking to you today. And I think Kurt did a great job of summarizing a lengthy and important career in 90 seconds, but we want to hear a little bit more about 
some of those intersections between Capitol Hill and the SEC, the timing and the tenure of your roles with with the commission and, and across the Hill from a financial regulatory perspective. I mean, I can't think of a more interesting time, right, than the past 20 years as it comes to all of the things that that we hear about from a financial regulatory perspective, right? We There was that little blip on the radar, we'll call the 2008 financial crisis. You've been in and around the building. I'd like to say that you're probably the person behind the people that, that run the commission, helping guide 19 SEC commissioners' confirmations, as well as hundreds of congressional hearings around that. So again, super interesting. We love it. I'm not doing a good job of talking about it. Share with us kind of a little bit more about your roles at the SEC. I was at the SEC from 2007 to 2021, which had a lot of <laughs> things going on at the time, the least of which is the financial crisis, yeah. Madoff, right. MF Global, the meme stocks. Um, we had all of Dodd-Frank. So the writing, some of the legislation that we'll talk about today and working with Congress to shape those. And it's been an interesting time. Baptism by fire. And it's interesting to see the work in between what Congress can do versus what the regulators can do and how that intersection works. Yeah. And, and we talk a lot about kind of the mission and focus, especially the SEC, as well as other kind of enforcement agencies or, or executive branch roles. And sometimes it can be interesting to talk about that intersection between where the funding goes and then where that mission is. So I'm sure those conversations, especially from the commission's perspective, kept changing, if you will, between that 2007 to 2021 period. I really probably led to some great discussions about what's important and then how do we fund it. Exactly. And what is part of the SEC's mission? I know for some of your listeners, what you've been talking about is whether or not the cryptocurrency is a security. And that's something, is Mm -hmm. it part of the SEC's mission or is it outside of it? Or is, you know, when we were doing conflict minerals and mm-hmm. climate change, whether or not that is part of it or is it not? So, and that is where Congress plays the role because, as you know, separation of powers, the only person who can write laws is Congress unless they acquiesce and give the agency the, that authority to write laws. But they're usually pretty specific of what laws it can write. Definitely. And and you bring up some great points about where the focus or, or where maybe the playing field ends for the SEC. There's a lawsuit filed recently about the SEC's role as a cybersecurity evaluator now, right, mm-hmm. with some of the, the regulations around that. So uh, we won't ask, Anne, for all of your answers on each of those specific topics where the commission's roles. But interested, too, in the past you know couple of years, right, transitioning back to the private sector. You know, you've obviously had an experience that's super interesting within the commission and, and, and on the Hill. What kind of counseling services are, are you focused on with Mercury uh, in your current role in the private sector? We identify political, legislative and regulatory risk on behalf of our clients, whoever they may be, and help develop strategic plans to achieve their policy goals. We try to get them a seat at the policy table because in D.C., as you probably know, sometimes if you aren't at the table, then you're what's on the menu. And it sounds like that's kind of focused on, I'll say, financial regulation, maybe for this podcast and our listeners. But are there other industries or avenues that, that Mercury's really had a lot of success with? Yeah, telecommunications. We work hmm. a lot in that. Privacy, FCF, TC, all of those areas. And I know we're going to talk about a lot of them today. <laughs> Just a great ad, right? For Mer- If you got problems, <laughs> go to Ann at Mercury Strategies. She'll help you figure them out. 
or at least explain what the acronyms mean. I'm still working on that. We've got our, our running cheat sheets on the right hand side. Well, here. And unfortunately, when we're talking budget, there's a lot of acronyms. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a letter salad basically today. I love it. We'll try to break it down as, as we go. Uh, all right, let's get into the budget a, a little bit. And I, I want to take a couple of minutes to talk at a sort of high level about government mm-hmm. spending before we really get into what's happening, you know, at the SEC and other places. I mean, like, honestly, I feel like we've been on the brink of a government shutdown repeatedly for the last five or six months uh, because the congressional leaders just can't seem to agree on the details of a spending bill. At least that's my understanding. So far, we've always managed to avoid that with some kind of short-term spending bill. Uh, and, and as I understand it, that's kind of where we are now. There's one or two deadlines, I think, sort of on the calendar in March, sort of looming in the distance. And that's the deadline before which Congress needs to pass an annual spending bill or ho- hopefully pass an, an annual spending bill and not punt again with another short-term kind of deal. But can you just sort of bring us up to speed on where things stand, what's happening do you know what's going to happen? <laughs> Anything you can do to help us understand well, this? If I knew what was going to happen, all my clients need to raise my fees because I'm pretty sure no one in D.C. <laughs> knows that at this point. But yeah. I would say, to take it back a little bit, the government's funding fiscal year runs from October 1st to September 30th. You were supposed to have the budget passed by September 30th, or the government shuts down. This last year, they did short-term continuing resolutions, CRs. Those CRs ran till November, so the government didn't shut down. Then they bumped them until January, and now we're in a CR that runs, there are two of them. One runs through March 1st, and that is going to deal with um, Veterans Affairs, Transportation, Ag, and Energy. And then the Eight others run through March 8. So there are 12 different spending bills in all. So what's going to happen when those two deadlines hit? That's a good question. So hopefully we will not have a shutdown. One of the things is we could do spending bills on both of those, uh, on all 12. And great, that will run through September and we're going to be in good shape. The other one is we might have a shutdown or we will do another CR. And a CR is when they say continuing resolution, short-term spending bills, it's just the continuation of FY23 spending levels to that date. So all of these agencies have asked for additional money because new things have happened between 2023 and 2024. They're not getting that money because they're just staying at the status quo from last year. I see. So, so the allowance stays the same in sort of layman's yeah. terms. Your, I mean, your chores may have increased, Kurt, but your allowance stays right. the same. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess, I, like, how does that affect the agencies? I mean, on some level, they've been operating with this budget for a while, so they're used to it. They know how to allocate their spend. But on the other hand, I mean, they've been sitting around sort of waiting for months and months. Like, what's my new allowance going to be? <laughs> how are agencies supposed to sort of plan and just continue operating in this environment? You know, it it is difficult for agencies to do. My experience is with the SEC, and it's a little different for the SEC. The SEC actually is, they have match funding. So they have to set fees based on what their funding levels are. Usually they set that at the first of the year. They have a midpoint that they could change it, which is no later than March. If they're not getting their 
funding until March. That means they have one shot at the goal to make sure that they hit the right number in order to match that allocation that Congress has set for them. So much for measure twice, cut yes. once, I guess. You're just <laughs> Maybe don't even measure, Kurt. Just <laughs> fire it out there. I mean, just to interject a little bit, to me, right, without getting too into the political sphere, right, we hear about these positions that legislators take on very specific elements uh, uh, of the spending bill. And I say specific, even though I know they're widely general. Is there kind of a, I imagine a push and pull as time progresses, right? No agency is going to be happy in 2027, still spending or being allowed to spend what they had in 2023, right? So on that spectrum, there's got to be a little bit of a friction as well as some acknowledgement of, I understand congressperson or or Miss Senator that your position is important, but at some point we've got to find some middle ground here just as a factor of time, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when there is a shutdown that affects so many people, especially government Mm -hmm. contractors, because they don't get paid back. But it it affects the agencies. It affects them long-term planning. Just like you and I, they have budgets. They have to figure out how they're going to implement those budgets and where money goes to what. And they have a hard time knowing if they don't have their money. So you, you mentioned that the way that this process works for the SEC is a little bit different in the sense that they have you know what you called match funding. But tell us a little bit about the typical process. I understand it's a competitive process where agencies are maybe kind of, you know, vying for dollars from a different committee or from, you know, somewhere, someone on the Hill. So what does that process look like for agencies that aren't the SEC? Okay. Well, we're going to get a little wonky. So that's what we love here. Let's go at a pretty high level. So starting for right now, the agencies are getting a request ready to send to OMB and the president of what they want their budget to be for 2026. Then they send it to OMB. OMB and the president will talk to them, will say, why are you getting this? They'll go back and forth asking questions. By November, the OMB will do a passback. Passback Monday is what it's called, where they say, okay, here's what we think you should get. Then the agencies will come back and try to fight with them. Some of the agency leads might actually go to the president trying to get the president's ask to be as high as it possibly can. They're fighting for dollars because there's a finite amount. And then in early February, usually this year, it's going to be later. It's going to be after the president's State of the Union. But then the president sends out its budget, and that is their request to Congress. This starts the congressional part of it. So Congress has different, they have the Appropriations Committee. They have different subcommittees on that. And they start whatever underneath their jurisdiction for the SEC, for example, it is FSGG, Financial Services and General Government Subcommittee. And they will meet with them, have hearings for the SEC or whatever agency to justify what they're asking for. Congress has oversight over the budget. They set the budget and they also have oversight of how the SEC or any agency that is appropriated. There are some FIREAs, so the Fed, FDIC, OCC, that are not appropriated. They just use their fees to fund themselves. Congress has nothing to do with that. But then they will have to convince that their ask is what Congress should pay them. And 
then we go through the process and that's where we are right now. But for 2024, we're right now we're waiting on what the allocations to each subcommittee when they divide up is. It's called 302 allocations. So there's the higher number and we're going to assume that it's 1.59 trillion is the top line number for all spending for 2024. Um, wow. Yeah. That's a lot of allowance, Kurt. <laughs> yeah, it's more than my kids do. Amen. Yeah. So then each one of the subcommittees, the chairman and ranking member of the appropriations committee, take that top line number and then do the 302B allocations and separate that up. And then each agency or program fights for the dollars underneath that allocation in the subcommittee. It's an ominous way to end that. Fights for the dollars. <laughs> talk us through kind of that competitive process. And maybe as an example, we can talk about an agency and, and how that works. Sure. I mean, it, it's hearings. It's going mm -hmm. in there, having meetings. They're looking through your budget justification of the agency to see whether or not you deserve that money. But it's not only that, because there is a finite pot of money You've also got to fight and say that your program, what you do is just as important as someone else underneath yep. their, just, their committee to make sure that you're getting the money that you need. And sometimes it's, you know, for House Ag, they do both the CFTC and they do, you know, USDA. USDA is the one who makes sure your food's healthy and safe and mm -hmm. you're not getting salmonella. That's exactly what the CFTC does, right? <laughs> uh, maybe I haven't, we haven't done that episode yet, Kurt. Maybe I have a misunderstanding. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> but so is that like an optics thing in terms of where the dollars are being allocated, right? Maybe folks don't have a good understanding of what exactly the CFTC's mandate is, but people can sort of get their head around what USDA does. Yeah. So does that sort of play into how the money is divvied um, up? Yes, in constituencies, I would say. So, you know, meat processing plants versus commodity buyers. Not really apples to apples. Not really uh, apples Or maybe apples. even apples to other fruit. That being said, I just want to say CFTC a does a very important job. <laughs> Amen. We obviously agree. Uh, one little note I want to throw in before we move on. Uh, there's a great podcast out there that came out last week from the New York Times, The Daily, that talks about the Oppenheimer development of the Manhattan Project and how they took this very top secret project and built, I think it was like $2 billion into the budget of the federal <laughs> government, knowing that it can't be as, you know, as widely known, right, as the CFTC's mission or, or what the SEC does. So I'll, I encourage all of you to go through and maybe put your accounting hats on and think about how you would budget for a very important and top secret project. <laughs> you guys can catch that on the daily earlier this month. Well, awesome. I will say I've been working with the SEC's budget, with budget things for years, since 2007, and I still don't understand congressional budget for the budget because it is it does not work the way I budget my money. So I'm still not sure how the government budgets, which might be why we have a deficit. I can understand. <laughs> All right. Oh, let's zoom in a little bit on the SEC. You know, we talked a little bit about the standard sort of competitive process. You noted earlier that's sort of not how it works for the SEC. So what does the appropriations process, if that's even the right phrase, look like for the commission? Well, I'm going to go back to when I started at the commission, which was 2007. The SEC's budget at that time was $882 million, and it was a direct appropriation. So we did fight for every dollar from 
the FSGG. So we competed against the other agencies in that for every dollar we had. This was different from the FIRIUS. So a good example is in the financial crisis, FDIC just raised their fees. And so they could hire more examiners and they had more money and it didn't matter. The SECs in the middle of the financial crisis, we were stuck with the money we had mm-hmm. and we needed more because things were going on. Yeah, right. <laughs> Understatement of the year. <laughs> um, so in Dodd-Frank, the SEC actually asked for just self-funding. So we would be just like the FDIC and the other FIRIAs, NCUA, et cetera. But we didn't get it. Instead, we got a compromise. At the last minute, Hmm. two o'clock in the morning during the Dodd-Frank markup, and that was match funding. So the SEC would still be under Congress's purview and oversight so that they could pull back money if they wanted to, or they can still have them in to have hearings. So Congress sets Mm -hmm. the SEC's appropriation, and then the SEC uses Section 31 fees to match that appropriation. So Section 31 fees are collected from SROs based on transactions of equities, and they charge it and then pay back Treasury for the SEC's appropriation. So each year, the SEC will change what those 31 fees cost per millionth of transactions. Well, let, let's break down the fees a little bit. And I'm jumping ahead, but I think it's important to understand before we move forward. So these Section 31 fees are, they exist under Section 31 of the Exchange mm-hmm. Act. And as I understand it, they are fees that the SEC assesses for like exchanges or you know places where securities transactions are taking place. Is that right? But this is different from, for example, registration fees for broker dealers or investment advisors. Can you just help me untangle yep. that a little bit? So yeah. So section 31 fees are transaction fees of the equities market. And they are paid to by mostly broker dealers and some exchanges to SROs. And the SRO is the one that actually pays it back. So you're charging the SRO, and this is kind of the art of it, you're not charging Mr. or Mrs. 401k every time they make a transaction. Mm -hmm. The fees are trickled down. So it's not a direct tax on taxpayers. Most people look at it as a tax on the SRO or just a fee from the SRO for, you know, some years it has been five cents on the million of transactions. So it's not a lot, but other times it's been $25 per million of transactions. So for some broker dealers, especially some of the high speed traders, that's a lot of money every year. I see. And the purpose of those fees is so that the SEC can pay back the government for the money that it got through this match funding. Is that how it works? So they re- allocated the, you know, we've always had these 31 fees, but under Dodd-Frank, they reallocated them to make them coincide and match up with the appropriation, which is a little different. So that's why you will hear Gary Gensler when he testifies saying that the SEC is budget neutral. I mean, all my accounting spidey senses are going off as we have this kind of, (laughs) I'll say short-term loan arrangement, even though that obviously doesn't apply here. But what happens when the numbers don't line up? And right, if we've got the SEC collecting fees more or less than what's been promised to 
through, through the match funny. Do we have some issues there? Like I said, I'm, I'm all abuzz right now thinking about yeah. this. So <laughs> this is where I said, I don't understand how the government's budgeting works. Because if I don't pay back my credit card, I get fees, I get late Think? fees, interest yep. rates. None mm-hmm. of that happens. So Congress appropriates the money. Treasury puts the money in the SEC's account. Then the SEC is supposed to collect these fees and pay back Treasury. Well, what's interesting, since 2011, when this has gone into effect after Dodd-Frank, the SEC has actually only collected as much of the appropriation once in 2020. Sounds like a lot of interest building on that credit card, Anne. Right. I mean, so <laughs> what's interesting is in 2022, the SEC undercollected by $414 million, which let's look at how much the CFTC is asking for this year, and that's $411 million. So that, and that's this year. So they basically undercollected a federal agency. Oh, I think we found our quote for this episode. (laughs) And full of them, for sure. All right. Well, so I want to talk a little bit about this account at Treasury, where the SEC has money and it's supposed to, you know, collect the fees to repay Treasury. I mean, how big is it? What's in it? Are there things other than just, you know, the amount it gets through match funding and the amount of fees that it collects? Sort of how does that work? Well, the SEC actually has several funds at Treasury. And I think it's good that we talk about a couple of them. So they have the fund, which is the operations fund. That's the one where they have to pay back treasury. They get allocated and that's what they do all their operations under. They pay back treasury funds through some of the other fees that you were talking about, the registration fees. But registration fees are Mm -hmm. also going into the reserve fund. And the reserve fund is separate from all of the SEC's appropriations. So the reserve fund was also created by Dodd-Frank. It's $50 million and it goes in there and Congress has said they would like the SEC to use it for technology. So in addition to the SEC's budget of this year, they're asking for uh, $2.436 billion, billion with a B, they get an, another $50 million. So that's to do as they want that's outside of appropriations. So is this, we, we sort of have like a checking account and a savings account. Is that kind a of what I'm hearing A couple of here? checkings and savings accounts. Because we have okay. another group that was also done by Dodd-Frank, and that's the Whistleblower Fund. And the Whistleblower Fund was created by Dodd-Frank, and that is from monetary penalties that the SEC does. And it is up to 100 million can stay in the account at one time. But now we know that 100 million doesn't stay in the account for very long because they're paying out those whistleblower fees on a regular basis of the hundreds of millions. So, but then the SEC has a fourth account and a couple of others. But another major one is what they call the SEC's Fund with Treasury. And this is a fund that they have stated in their financial reports as an asset. And this is money that I call, I used to call it the Hotel California Fund. The money went in, it could never come out. There were 31 fees prior to 2011 that were overpayments from some of the uh, brokers. Some of them are disgorgements 
that cannot be paid out to customers and some other investment fees, things like that, that are in there. Right now, that is over, I think it's $9.3 billion with a B is in there. Wow. But it has never been authorized or appropriated from Congress, so it can't be spent. So it just sits there collecting money. I think that's an interesting touch point. You talked about the whistleblower program. And, and to summarize some of our great episodes, Kurt, on the whistleblower program, the idea is that if Chris Ekimoff goes forward and uh, you know whistleblows about a company that's fined $100 million by the SEC, based on my level of participation, I personally may be granted 10 to 30% or $10 million to $30 million of that fee that's recognized. And I think, and you're talking about that delta, right? If the company pays $100 million and Chris gets $30 million, what do we do with the 70, right? What's left, right, on that? Or is the 30 added on on top of the $100 fine or $100 million fine? And it sounds like it's just parked in this Hotel California account for time immemorial, if you will. Well, can I can I actually split that up just a little bit? Do you bit? want because some let's of the whistleblower just, money, Kurt, or are you talking about? <clears throat> I, I okay, do. Great. Yes. No. <laughs> so so let's just say you were you know a really great whistleblower. Mm-hmm. You had wonderful representation from learned counsel. <laughs> I won't mention may any or may names. Not co-host, right. <laughs> but so let's say there's seventy million left in this sort of kitty for mm-hmm. the SEC to do something with. I, I would assume in many cases that some chunk of that would be. Uh, sort of disgorgement, right? Or the kind of money that would go back to harmed mm-hmm. investors. Some of that may be a penalty, right? A civil monetary penalty. And so do we think about those differently in terms of what account they go into at Treasury or whether or how the SEC can spend yes, them? we do. So some of it goes back to, it's they're all supposed to go back to harmed investors. There's portion to make up that hundred million that needs to sit in there that will go toward the whistleblower fund. And then some might go back to general treasury. So that is just the fund that pays the rest of the appropriations for the entire company. U.S. government bills. U.S. government bills. Yep. But of that 70 million, it doesn't necessarily go into the fund at treasury. So if you got a hundred million Kurt gets 30, not all 70 will go into that. It will be facts and circumstances based whether or not it can go into that. Usually it's disgorgements that can't be paid out that ends up going into that fund. Hmm. But a few years ago, it was 7 billion. It is now 9 billion. And it sounds to me like we've talked about a few different, I'll call them inflows, right? Revenue might be another term that others use, but really kind of the money that stands up the SEC. We've got the appropriations, we've got the match, the registration fees, we've got disgorgement and penalties coming in. You know, Who's in charge of how that money is supposed to be spent, right, at the commission? The chairman. So reorg number 10 in 1950, so that's where we're going back to, actually Excellent. puts all of the power for the running of the agency away from the commission, so all the commissioners and puts it with the chairman. He gets to decide both where the agencies, what cases you know, are brought toward them, the priorities are of the agency, and how much money where that is. There are other agencies like the FTC where the entire commission votes on their budget. Hmm. But Reorg 10 put all the power with the chairman. So are there any checks on that? Authority, right? So let's say that the chair is spending money on things that are outside of the SEC's jurisdictional reach or mandate or things that the other four commissioners sort of disagree with. 
in, in terms of what may be programmatically important. Is there a check? I mean, can someone say, Chair, no, we don't think that's only Congress. Congress. So how would that work? So it would be a hearing. It would be the next year on their appropriations. Congress is taking money away from the SEC. It has not happened while I was at the SEC, but it did happen to the CFTC a couple of times where they got their budgets cut. So they went backwards. So that is what happens. The SEC did get their reserve fund cut during that, and we've had sequestered. So there's different things that happen. But the only person who can really check it is commissioners coming out publicly and saying they don't agree. But they can't stop it because there's no vote. But members of Congress can either have hearings on it or they can do appropriations on it and saying, you know, they, they're writers on bills. I think there was a writer this year that actually took Gary Gensler's pay down to a dollar. It didn't pass. <laughs> Did that go through? It didn't pass. Yeah. It was in the House side. The House is the one that can do that because they had a specific provision that allowed them to take any single employee or program and cut its budget in there, but it did not pass in committee. Interesting. I mean, that creates uh, some tension, I would imagine. And, and as you mentioned it, I'm remembering a couple of years ago, I don't remember what the rule was, uh, but there was a rule at, where a couple of members on the Hill said, look, we don't like this rule and we're going to go through your budget sort of line by line and find every dollar that you've allocated to implementing this new rule that we don't like. And, and we're going to cut that out of yeah. the budget. So I mean, is that, I mean, it seems like an odd way to shape policy, but it sounds like maybe that's what happens. So there's actually a writer that has been on there for about, I would say eight years. And it says that no money in this appropriation can be used to do blank. And that means you can't mm-hmm. do a, it says rule or enforcement. So there have been a couple of times the Congress has done that. So they can't even write the rule and it takes away the commission's ability to write a rule on it. Do you do that with say crypto? I don't know. Somebody could say no SEC dollars uh, should be spent on crypto enforcement going forward unless and until there's a, you know, an authorizing statute. There was actually a bill similar to that in the House this year. It did not pass, but it was done. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So it was offered, but it did not have the votes enough to pass. But that is one of the things they can do. The one I was thinking of is a writer that limited the SEC's rulemaking and enforcement on disclosures of political contributions. Interesting. And we've talked a lot about some of the ins and outs, the uniqueness, the differences between how, you know, certain agencies will, we've obviously focused on the SEC, how those agencies, uh, you know, spend and, and appropriate their money and how different it is from, uh, you know, Joe and Jane 401k in terms of what we expect. Uh, you know, we talked about how the SEC is continually outspending its appropriation. And also there may be areas in recent years that they're taking a, a focus on that's outside of their congressionally mandated remittance. Do you think that the SEC is being a good steward uh, of the funds entrusted to it by the U.S. taxpayer? You know, it doesn't sound like someone I would make a loan to. Right. If, if they're spending those loan <laughs> proceeds on things we didn't agree to and they're not paying it back on time. But is that too simplistic, maybe too unfair uh, characterization? You know, I'm going to say that's something for Congress to decide. But I know congressional staff has been asking the question, how does this math add up? If only 31 fees can be used to pay back Treasury for the SEC's operations, and the SEC is continuously under-collecting 
why are there no ramifications for the undercollection? And should the SEC be receiving funding increases after missing the mark the prior year? Since match funding was enacted in 2011, the SEC's funding has increased yearly from $1.185 billion to FY23's $2.14 billion, a billion-dollar increase. Congress is looking closely at where the increase is going and what the SEC is using that money for. In 2022, the SEC only examined 15% of the registered investment advisors. That isn't a lot. And investment advisors is what most people use to decide where their money goes. Should examining something so many retail investors use be prioritized over examining the use of AI and crypto? Or should the SEC be using their limited resources to prosecute some stale cases? Or we've heard about the debt box case, which had questionable evidence. Is that something that the SEC should be using their resources for? One of the things the SEC said will be a priority in 24, both in their budget justification and the testimony and their recent financial report, is crypto and AI. So the question Congress might have, is crypto and AI a financial product that the SEC has authority over? Should the SEC be using their resources for rulemaking authority in this area? And, you know, there's a Supreme Court case about the major question doctrine that asks the same thing. It sounds like until those get resolved, uh, effectiveness is in the eye of the beholder uh, and for whatever position or, or how they believe the commission's going. So uh, I think that's kind of a great rundown of, of all kind of the inner workings of the budgetary process. Obviously, Kurt, I think you did a great job of staying wonky on all the budgeting and financial discussions here. I don't know if that's a, a passion for you <laughs> as it is for folks like me and Ann. I just, I wanted to get more into the accounting. Oh, That's what is. I felt there like we is. were lacking. Yeah. I love when you're patronizing. <laughs> it's wonderful. Well, Anne, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. For those of you interested in more uh, of what Anne's uh, experience is, as well as, uh, you know, maybe interacting with her at Mercury Strategies, we'll be sure to put her contact information in the show notes. But Anne, thanks so much for joining us on Insecurities. Thanks. It was lovely being here today. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, Ann Kelly of Mercury Strategies. We always love to hear from you, our listeners. Look for us on social media to share your thoughts and comments or topics you'd like us to explore on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag Insecurities Pod on X or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Ekimoff CPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore update. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Insecurities wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. 
These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.